Well, I'm delighted to say that to joining me on the Godcast this week is Peter Smith. Now, Peter Smith is a man of many talents. He he works for Sky Sports, uh, covering football and and many other sports over the years. He is also um, uh, works in media and works with universities and does lecturing. But he is also a civil funeral celebrant. So, Peter, it's brilliant to get you on the Godcast. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me on. Peter, we've got some commonalities that we, we've only just recently um, learnt, is that we uh, both went to the same school. We went to Agend in Nelson. Uh, you, you're a few years older than I am, but we remember the same head teacher, Dot Proud. Have you got happy memories of, of your childhood growing up in Nelson? Oh, incredible happy memories of childhood in Nelson. Probably the happiest times of my life, really. If I if I think back to the happiest feeling, what was the most happiest and carefree in the sort of mid to early 1970s, really? Um, went to St Paul's Primary School, lived in a wonderful environment on a back street in Nelson. Um, loved the music of that era. Loved everything about that era, really. Watched the big match revisited um, on ITV4 every, every week. A really, really wonderful childhood. Yeah. Edge end, no, nothing. Five irrelevant years, really. But certainly primary school days at St Paul's, quite incredible. It's interesting to say that the high school years were irrelevant. What, what, why, what would you put that down to, Peter? What was the thinking behind that? Because, and it happens all too often, and I would say this to anybody, anybody who's not academically brilliant doesn't mean to say you're a failure when you leave school. And I always felt, because it was drummed into you, in the late 70s and early 80s, if you don't leave this school or if you don't possess so many O-levels and A-levels and you haven't got a chance in life, and it sticks with you for a bit. And when you get older and wiser, you believe it's the biggest load of rubbish and the biggest load of nonsense ever. Anybody can be successful in life if you put your mind to it and you've got sensible parameters and you believe in yourself. Mm. I I've never been asked about how, how many O-levels I've got. You know, I've coached at universities. Nobody said to me, how many O-levels have you got? When you're out on a story for Sky Sports and things are kicking off outside Anfield or Old Trafford or wherever, and you've got to get that story, the desktop ring up and say, what, what sort of O-levels and A-levels have you got? They just say, are you ahead of the game? What have you got for us? And there's so many different people in life that can do all manner of things. People who lose school without any great qualifications, but they can be brilliant in engineering or fantastic in woodwork and and they forge great careers and do all kinds of things what i tell young people is that if i can do what i've done in my life and be the places go visit the places that i've been professionally anybody can do anything and, and, and i firmly believe that you need application there's, there's no point in messing around at school or messing around at college or university or whatever you know you've got to be focused and you've got to be realistic but I'm afraid for too many years after leaving secondary school, I had an inferiority complex that not good enough because I wasn't academically gifted, but mm. I was gifted and good in other areas. And I've always used in life the strengths that I've got professionally and tried to do my best. And that's all anybody can do. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite saddened to hear that because that was my experience of agenda. Maybe that was the experience of other people at high school in, in that, that period. I, I, uh, I left school with a chip on my shoulder, which I carried for, for a very long time, actually. And it's probably only in 
in later years that I feel like I've shaken that off and and, and are proud of what yeah, I've achieved. Same, same here, Alex. Same here. Yeah. And and I remember I remember going to the careers officer up in the library at Edge End in Nelson, uh, telling the careers advisor I wanted to be a golfer, and I was like literally kicked out of the the room, and and obviously that that didn't transpire. But I did come away. Th- thinking about uh, our, our interview today that, you know, you, you've gone on to work in media and football commentary. It's one of those kind of jobs when you say to somebody, I want to be a football commentator, it's a bit like saying I want to be a, a snooker player or I want to, you know, I want to win the world championship at darts, whatever it is. You know, there, there is so little room in, even now I think in society, I think we, we point people in the direction of academia when we should be point them in a completely different direction. It's 100% true. Um I, I always smile when I go to universities, you know, because there are always people who coach at university. People pay £9,000 a year to be coached by people who've never been near the media. They've read it all out of books. But because they've got PhDs, they think that they are better than practitioners. But they've never ever broken a story. They've never been in major media scrums. They've never been around Premier League managers. They've never been on the end of the shop, end of their tongues or anything like that. So I always ask the question, how can they be better to coach young people media than people who've been around like myself for decades that know the game inside out, back to front and and roundabout? But it's, it's always this thing about being intellectually superior. And listen, I wouldn't doubt that they are more intelligent than I am intellectually and academically. But when it comes to coaching sports journalism and the real world and what really goes on, we're way better than they are. End of story. End of story. There's no, I would say to anybody um, who's never been near proper frontline journalism, who thinks that they can coach it better than me, let's have a session, right? Let's bring in 100 prospective students for next year with the parents. You put a session on and I'll put a session on. And then we'll have put it to a vote afterwards. Who wants to be coached by the practitioner who knows it inside out and back to front and has been around superstars and knows how the media works or somebody who's very, very intelligent, who's never ever been near the industry, who's never ever liked to go anywhere near the industry. Who do you want to be coached by? Mm. Well, I know the, I know the answer. Uh, Peter, did, did you always want to, uh, did you always want to go into the media? Were, were you, what, you know, when, when we look back at those school days, what did you want to do when you left school? What was your game plan? Did you have any idea? I'm just football mad, you know, absolutely football mad. Uh, and I was lucky, really, because in 81, I mean, when you think back, it was Margaret Thatcher's Britain, and we were going through probably the worst recession since the war, and jobs were hard to come by. And we had the the old youth opportunity system uh, in place, um, which some people call it slave labour. Um, and the government t- talked about it as being a way to get young people into work, whichever way you looked at it. Um, I was lucky I got a job leaving school at a green grocery store uh, in the market hall in Nelson. Uh, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was going to be doing long term. I knew I didn't want to do that because very kindly initially they gave me the Saturday afternoons off. And then they said that was about to change. And I thought, I, I can't work on a Saturday. You know, I, I want to be a football. I really want to be a football. And I said to my mum, and I'm, I'm, I'm a dad, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to become a football journalist, a football commentator. But back in those days, it was difficult because there was only three television channels back in those days. And um, a local radio was just about to take off. But my mum said to me one night, well, she works as a nurse at Burnley General Hospital. 
we've got a hospital radio station that's uh, really proactive. Why don't you knock on a door there and see, see if there's anything there for you? And that would be early 1982, and it was always something that I was going to do, but I'd never get around to it. I was always going to do it, but I wouldn't have done, if you know what I'm saying. And then one day, one, one July Saturday afternoon, where the market store was in Nelson, I'd always, when I finished at 12.15, just walk out of the stall, straight up the stairs, straight onto Manchester Road, out into the open. But for some reason, and I don't know why I did it to this day, it's fate, instead of turning left, I turned right, and I walked through the market hall, went up the stairs into the Arndale Centre in Nelson, and there, that day, there was a big hospital radio outside broadcast. And that was my moment of destiny in life. I thought, there's people here from the hospital radio. I've got to ask them. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to make an inquiry. And I thought, I'll do it during the week. And then I had to sit down on one of the benches and compose myself. No, no, this is it. I have to do it now. I have to do it now or never. So now or never. And I asked one of the presenters who was there, and he said, yeah, there's a sport program on a Wednesday. Come down and introduce yourself. I did the following Wednesday. And to coin that dreadful old cliche in life, the rest is history. It's, it's fascinating that you talk, because I can see commonalities again. My, my first job was in Nelson Arndale. I worked for Curry's in, in this is in the day before retail parks existed. And uh, I, I was a van lad for, for Curry's working in a little shop there. And the other commonality is that I also went on to do hospital radio. I did um, an afternoon slot uh, from Burnley General Hospital in a lovely little studio there and, and loved it playing final of my own choice and, and uh, not really caring who was listening, but just loving the experience. And in those days, it was a great grounding, wasn't it, for media, getting into hospital radio, and that, and that clearly was uh, true for you. Um, and that, But then I love I love in your web, on your website, Peter, how you kind of suggest that you go from – well, you, you don't suggest you did. You went from Nelson Market to the Macarena in Brazil. Macarena. Uh, yeah, there's a few gaps in between there. Just so, how did you? How did your career evolve into the world of journalism and media? Well, I told you about that moment of fate in the Market Hall on Dale Centre in '82. There was a, there was another moment of fate um, that happened in September 1981, uh, which sort of paved the way a little bit. So it's, it's a crazy story, really, um, because. I'd left school, was earning, um, and I went to Anfield one one night for Liverpool against Middlesbrough. It was Liverpool's first home game after the European Cup triumph. Uh, and my dad had a little Canon, Canon camera with him, and he used to sort of like take photographs to commemorate it. It was like my, my treat for leaving school, got my wage, going to take me on man to a big game, Liverpool versus Middlesbrough. And with this little Canon camera, we were sitting in the, in the main stand at Anfield, and my dad was a former PE master. He's like um, a real establishment man, one of the most law-abiding citizens you'd ever, ever come across in your in your, in your whole life. And I said to, said to Dad, Dad, do you reckon you can get some photographs of the Liverpool players when they run out? Bear in mind me thinking he had an incredible zoom lens. All he had was an inbuilt lens into his camera. And he got up and he moved to the front of the main stand at Anfield, jumped down into the paddock. And then the next thing I saw of him, he was right by the tunnel at Anfield. And then Phil Thompson emerged, followed by Bruce Grobler, Graham Soonis, and, and all the Liverpool stars at that time. And there's my dad snapping away on his, on his little camera. I thought, amazing, Dad. 
And then he said, I'm going to try that. If we've got the next game, which was against Arsenal the following weekend, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to try it again. And he got down again. He started befriending himself with, with, with the stewards there. And Pat Jennings, the great Arsenal goalkeeper, came out. My dad stopped him and, and got a photograph. And he became part of the, the setup there. People accepted him. Uh, there's a guy called Derek Anderton who wrote a book, Tunnel Vision Anfield. I helped him promote it a couple of years ago. Uh, who was the head steward there. And my dad got summoned before him, and I thought my dad was going to get kicked out. But Derek took sort of pity on him and allowed him to stay and gave him an official bib every time we went to Anfield. So I thought, you know, maybe with my dad having an insight into to Liverpool, maybe I could get hospital radio interviews. And that's what happened. I used to be able to go in after the game, and Derek Anderton, who was the chief steward of, of, who looked at the photographers, he'd help me fix up interviews with like famous players. It was, it was quite amazing, really. First interviews I ever did were with um, a massive Kevin Keegan fan, massive Kevin Keegan fan in, in childhood. He was the first player I ever interviewed, uh, along with Emily Hughes at a Rotherham, Liverpool game, a Rotherham Newcastle game in October 1982. Uh, just an unbelievable start. Then I went all the way through, um, started commentating on some of the Burnley home games, probably learned the art of football commentary on the worst ever football matches that were played at Turf Moor, because they were dreadful during the, the mid-1980s. They were. You know, under um, John Benson, uh, John Bond, John Benson, um, Tommy Kavanagh. Um, then there's a great Orient game in 1987, which was quite unreal, commentating on that match. Mm. And then turned professional when club calls started in in 1988 so so that that was my journey up to that point then getting a staff job in august 88 then going on trial when manchester united needed somebody getting the gig at old trafford and then all the incredible things that happened at old trafford in the 1990s and and, and beyond we really have been so fortunate in my professional life yeah now, people who are listening will not know what the backdrop is to the interview but those who are watching this on youtube will see uh, Bolton Wanderers uh, Middlebrook Stadium there. Uh, why is that not Turf Moor, Peter? Well, if you ask me, where's your favourite football stadium in all the world? And thankfully, I've, I've worked to and been to all the greatest stadiums in the world. If you ask me, where's my favourite? That's going to be Bolton Wanderers. Uh, I, I, I used to be part of a small TV production company called uh, Touchline Television, uh, which formed in the early 90s. I was one of three partners in it. Um, and we did the gig at Bolton Wanderers last year at Burnham Park. And then we used to do the in-house television channel, uh, which is one of my brainchilds back in the day. Um, and when Sam Allardyce took over, we just had the most amazing time there. It was absolutely brilliant. Sam gave us open house to, to do what we wanted. Uh, and they had so much success and they had such a great team of JJ Kotcher and El Hajjouf and Yuri Jokiev and the late great Gary Speed and Kevin Nolan. It was an absolutely fantastic time. I really, really enjoyed that period of Bolton Wanderers' success in the early part of the 21st century. So this is my favourite stadium. That's why I've got it as my backdrop. But yeah. they're interchangeable. I did, I did used to have a Boca Juniors one. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, well, I wouldn't be averse to putting Turf Moor or Rackington Stanley <laughs> as, a, as a backdrop. But this is my favourite stadium in, on the whole of the planet. Yeah, it's clear that it's clear that you are a lover of uh, football uh, generally, Peter. But do, do you do you follow a team? Do you follow the Clarets, or or are you very you know you kind of middle of the road like to play it with a straight bat here? Well, I think if you're in journalism and and if you're in television, you you've got to be hundred percent non biased So 
I, I like all Northwest football to do well. Obviously, I, I want everybody in East Lancashire to do well. I want Burnley to do well. I want Accrington Stanley, mm. uh, Blackburn, and I'm, I'm Bolton and, and, and Wigan and Blackpool. And I want, I want all of them to do well. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in every single one of our local teams, but I, I just don't feel you can ever be biased. No. And whenever you get pressed with a question like, who do you support? I can always say, I'm a Nelson fan. <laughs> and by the way, stop me if you think you've heard this one before. And some people out there will have heard it before. We beat Real Madrid 4-2 100 years ago. The first English club to ever ever beat the record European Cup winners. So um, at heart, I'm an Elson fan. And, and that formed part of my early football education in the 1970s. Because uh, when I was old enough, I used to go and watch some of the Lancashire combination games there on a, on, on a Saturday afternoon. It was two pence to get in. As I recall, or two new pens to to get in in the early nineteen seventies. So uh, at heart, I'll always be Nelson. Yeah, I really like hearing that, Peter, because uh, you know I'm I'm an ex uh, amateur ref and referee down at Nelson many times. A lot of the local grounds and clubs, are, and uh, took my daughter to Paddyham this week. I, the, you know, although the football has never been kind of what's the more more marketable it, grassroots the non-league stuff is still magical isn't it do you do you still try and take in a, a non-league game from time to time yeah i go regularly actually because i'm very good friends with brent peters at Baker borough football club he's been the manager and the owner there for 26 years nearly now uh, and we became friends following a story um back in 2004 when he signed david may former manchester united travel winner to play for Baker. so me and brent are are good friends, and whenever I can, which is probably about three or four times a season if I'm not working, and they've got a game, I very often go up there. Um, and, and I keep an eye on it as well, you know, keep an eye on how Nelson are doing. I very rarely get a chance to, to, to go to Victoria Park to watch games, but it still provides a great memory. I, I used to train on there when I was probably about seven or eight because my dad being a school teacher, sometimes he got access to uh, Victoria Park for after session school coaching. Uh, and he'd let me join in some of the drills. So I always used to think it was absolutely great that I could play on that pitch as a seven and eight-year-old and dream about the victory against Real Madrid. <laughs> Fabulous. Now, I know you've got a long association with uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, Peter, and perhaps just share a few highlights of that. But also the other Nelson connection is is, is Mike Phelan, isn't it, who who it was from is from Nelson area, who was kind of... Uh, Sir Alex's right-hand man and, and kind of trusted servant for many years. What was, what was that? What was the strength of that relationship? Do you think trust? Probably. Uh, I think that Sir Alex always wants people around him who he can trust. And yeah, there's been a few different assistant managers. Brian Kidd's probably one of my favourite assistant managers. Uh, Manchester, well, Archie Knox was the first one uh, when I started covering United. Brian Kidd's my favourite. I, I, I thought that I think that he's a great coach. And what he's done in Manchester football circles on both sides of the divide, you know, he, he's so respected by Reds and Blues. Um, but Steve McLaren did a good job as as, as well. But no, it's, it's quite surreal to think that Mr. Alex is going to be one of the greatest icons forever, isn't he? Uh, and to think that I was so close to him for so many years and then got on the wrong side of him and then had a really, really strange probably about three and a half years with him uh, and then got back on the good side again. It's quite incredible to, to, to look back on, really. Some of the privileges that he afforded me, Sir Alex, 
covering United were just unreal. Un- un- unreal. I mean, to be just, in... Just in share some of those, Peter. Well, I mean, well, perhaps if you could also just share what you think it was that really naffed him off. <laughs> well, the great things that, 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 that he allowed me to, to do. I hadn't won the title for 26 years. Go on the lap of honour at Old Trafford. I think about what that's like. They're walking around the pitch with a title, Premier League, first ever Premier League title, and he's allowed me to walk around with them. You can you can you can, you can see it on the Sky footage. Uh, allowed in dressing rooms after FA Cup wins, after League Cup wins, after Premier League title wins. Um, going on the team bus pre-season, you know, being on the Manchester United team bus, it's quite incredible. I always tell anybody who's prepared to listen that. I got screamed at by dozens of girls once, you know. At least I thought it was me, and then I looked over my shoulder, and Ryan Giggs and, and Lee Sharp were getting off the bus behind me. But I was that that, that close to it, to 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 what was going on there. It, it it was quite unbelievable. Going with them in Europe everywhere as well. Mm. Uh, that was a dream, and and perhaps the best thing, you know, to get round to what we were talking about earlier, pulling back the curtains on Copacabana Beach every morning. And in, in Rio de Janeiro for the World Club Championship. And several weeks prior to that, watching the sunrise in Tokyo for another World Club Championship that they took part in. So when you look back, no, what, what, what price would you put on it? You know, we've got sort of like so much wealth in Saudi Arabia now. If you, if you said to somebody, or as a charity auction, what would you pay to go on a Manchester United team bus to a game? Or what would you pay to be able to go to the dressing room afterwards? But people are celebrating with a Premier League title or a FA Cup or a League Cup. Mm. What people have paid hundreds of thousands. To, I'm sure. I'm sure a millionaire would pay six figures for that. Yeah. But yet, it, it was a regular part of the working year, and that's what I mean. I was so so close to it. You don't really think about it at the time because you get on with it. You part of it is you're still working and you still have to produce material for whoever you you're working for. Which in my case was Manchester United Club Call and Manchester United Radio at the time. And I didn't take it for granted or anything like that. Uh, but those 90s years were probably the best of my working life. I know I love working this guy, mm-hmm. but those 90s years were, as Tina Turner once sang, simply their best. <laughs> now, listen, this this modest Vic is not a journalist, but I can hear all the voices saying, but why did they fall out? What was the cold shoulder? So I've got to stick my journalistic head on, which I'm not. Uh, <laughs> what, 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 what happened? I, I'm intrigued to know. Can you tell us? Yeah, I can actually. Uh, I've written memoirs about it. I don't know whether, when or where or if they'll get published, but I've written extensive memoirs about it. Because when I look back, it, it, it disappoints me. It really, really disappoints me. We had so much trust. And I, and I thought if I was ever going to be jettisoned or ostracized by him, I, I don't think I ever would have done. I'd never have done anything deliberately to do that. But I mean, there are opportunities for a a journalist to do that. You could sell stories to tabloid newspapers and take money if you wanted. Things that you saw, things that I did see that I've never ever said to anybody. You could abuse trust and but I never did. You know, um yeah, you you're only one question away from a, a rocket. Uh and I got a few of those down the years for doing my job or trying to interview properly about issues that had happened in games or things that were surrounding the club. But what happened was something totally, totally innocuous. 
and he was really, really angry with me about it. And he had no need to be angry with it. And it happened at the worst possible time. It was an incident that happened at, at, at Liverpool just before the treble. Uh, and I knew afterwards, I thought, aye, aye, this is going to be problematic. And it was. And then he really, really gave me the cold shoulder for a short period. I remember when they won the, three games coming up to cover when you'd just fallen out with the greatest manager that's ever lived. Tottenham at home, a win and the title comes back. The week after that, the FA Cup final against Newcastle. And then the Wednesday after that, the Champions League final in, in Barcelona. Uh, and I didn't enjoy that trouble period. And it hurts me that I didn't enjoy it. I take compensation in the fact that I did enjoy Tokyo and I did enjoy Rio, the World Cup Championships, as part of winning the Champions League in in Barcelona. But I never enjoyed it. I could talk about it for a long time. I refer to it in my memoirs. And it was a crazy, crazy standoff that we had for three and a half years afterwards. Ridiculous standoff, in fact. We were like hinge and bracket for those who can remember those great characters from the from the 1970s. I don't know why he tolerated me. I don't know why he put up with me because we just had a most bizarre relationship for three and a half years afterwards. And in the end, I took a really, really big gamble. And I, irrit- I knocked him, seriously knocked him. I irritated him. And he could have finished me. Uh, but it worked. Thank- thankfully, thankfully, the gamble worked. And then we got back on side with each other again and, 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 and things were were more or less good um, there and after. But like I say, I, I'm that as it sounds, I'm the only guy on the planet who spent 25 years on the inside with him uh, in a working capacity, in a, in a journalistic capacity. Uh, David Meek, the late great David Meek, did the full 26 years uh, between 86 and 95 as a Manchester Evening News correspondent. Then he, then he wrote Sorex's program notes after that. Stuart Matheson of the Manchester Evening News did between 1995 and 2013. Uh, but I did the longest stint between 1988 and 2013, 25 years in total. And they were, they, they, they were amazing years. They were, the thing about writing them is, and if I, if, I ever, if I ever do publish them, it is an honest assessment of this is what it is like working in football journalism. This is what it is like being around a huge, iconic and powerful figure like Sir Alex. It's not slagging anybody off or anything like that. It's just how I saw it. And there's nothing that I will have sort of pre-written that I wouldn't say to Sir Alex to his face or to any of his sons or any of his entourage to to, to his face. Um, it's, it's just the way it is. It's very, very difficult to sometimes explain I, I always say that you only really and the only people who understand the media properly and, and the football media properly are those who live it and those who are within it there's so many nuances and so many intricacies it can be very very difficult to to explain mm-hmm. to people or for people to 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 to, to, to grasp so i still sort of still the greatest for me still mm-hmm. still the greatest manager that ever lived and i suppose you've got to look back and say it was a privilege to have been around him for so so many years. But it sounds as a published author, it sounds like a book that's waiting to be to be completed and published because it's got all the hallmarks of a fascinating read. And and I think, you know, most professional people understand 
that you know what's written is you know it's not malicious and it's it's um, journalistic and it's informative and it sounds like a, it sounds like a great idea. Peter, no, but what... I've, some some of the people who've read the two synopsis chapters that I've done about trouble, trouble, and being in the Fergie doghouse, you know, they, they say oh, Sir Alex might not like it if he reads it, but then Sir Alex would like an awful lot of what I've written about him of what is good about him because mm. honestly, when he's fantastic. He is. He's, he, he he could be quite unbelievable in terms of kindness. I, th- I think people people often get the wrong perception of him because very often when you see him interviewed in the media, you look back at some of the clips when he's on camera. He's so so focused, and there's, there's never a more driven or focused man I've ever seen in my life than Sir Alex. But away from that, and not many people ever got in his inner circle. He yeah. was humorous. He'd laugh at all sorts of stuff, all sorts of nonsense. Uh, he, he honestly could be a, a great laugh, and he could also be extremely kind. And and I, I can give you two examples of of of, of how kind he was uh, and is. Um, I remember a radio colleague of mine, the late great Tom Tyrrell, um, being so worried about a friend of his at the golf club who had severe depression, and I'm talking about severe, um, dreadful, suicidal thoughts. And he mentioned it to Sir Alex before we did an interview once at the Cliff Turning Ground. And so like, so, wait here, wait here. Uh, when are you leaving? Probably another half hour. Well, just, just wait here. And he came down with a letter that had been typed. He, he, he dictated a letter to his secretary and, and signed it. He said, give, give, give that to the gentleman and give him my best wishes. And I hope that it helps him. And it did. I mean, I mean imagine if, you, if you're feeling really down and you're feeling really low, and then you get an encouraging, motivational, inspirational letter from the greatest manager that's ever walked the planet. That's the kindness of Sir Alex. That's what I absolutely love about him. Yeah. Um, another thing as well, when I was when I was back on side with him, um, there's a gentleman you you might know him actually, Alex. So you you might be aware of him, the late great Sid Parkinson, who was the oldest football physio in the world. Yeah, I know the uh, name. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. He was at Com Dynamo's. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's a long story how, how, how it came to be, but it, it involves Brent Peters at Baker Boren, it involves Duncan McFadgen, who's Tom Dynamo's greatest ever footballer. Um, but funny enough, after I met Brent when he signed David May, Brent talked about Sid Parkinson because we both knew him and said that he should get recognised by the Crown for 70 years' devotion to non-league football as a volunteer physio. And I got some publicity on Sky Sports News, but then said to Sir Alex, could, could, could he come down in the tunnel afterwards? Would you, would you have a few words with him? And he, I'm sort of fine, bring him down, bring him down. So I did, you know, and he was so, can you imagine the oldest physio in the world who's been around um, grassroots football all his life, walks down the tunnel and there's Sir Alex, said, how are you, mate? Come, come in and shake his hand and, and, and chats with him. That's what Sir Alex is, is like. No airs and graces. And after he'd met him, I said, Alex, Sir Alex, would you do us a kindness, please? We've, we've got four letters that we're going to send to the government to see if they can get Sid recognised by the Crown. But obviously, he's the other side of 90. Still running on football pitches, mind. Not a problem. Not a problem. So, so the following week, there's a letter. Go to the training ground. There's Sir Alex's letter nominating 
Sid for an MBE before it was too late. And he got it as well. Fabulous. That, that, that was the clincher. Yeah, that was fabulous. the clincher. I knew if I got Sorex on board, that would do it. And it did the trick. And I've got this memory of the, the tra tragic thing about Sid's life was that he loved his grandkids so much. And his, his grandson had died because uh, his grandson was born blind um, and had a very short life expectancy and died um, in, his, in his early 20s. And his granddaughter was still alive. And she had the same problem, unfortunately. Um, and she died too. He outlived both his grandkids, which is like, oh, gosh. But we took him in a limo to Buckingham Palace and myself, Brent Peters and Duncan McFadgen. And I've got this image in my mind of seeing Sid so happy with his granddaughter next to him with his MBE medal outside Buckingham Palace. Um, and so I explained a big point in that. That's you know? and, and, and it's a great moment in time yeah. that the greatest manager that ever lived played a part in. So what's to say, yeah, brilliant at times. Yeah, not so brilliant at times. If I ever do publish it, it'll reflect everything. Yeah. The fact that he can be, as Graham Soonis calls him, a stubborn old so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. um, and he can be just the best as well. Yeah. Lovely stories. And I love that story about, about Sid there. Peter, we're, we're, we're moving on. And I want to touch on the, the funeral stuff in a second. But you know, we're, we're Sky Sports. Tell us how that works. You, you could, can you be sent anywhere at a weekend and... I suppose that, that must be a real thrill knowing that, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, next game is probably your least favourite team, actually, Alec, which is why I was talking about being neutral. Um, yeah, yeah no, I abs <laughs> absolutely love, love, love working on that programme. Absolutely yeah. superb, yeah. Gives so, me a real sense of focus as well. Prepare for the games properly. and Yeah. Um, no, I, I absolutely love working on that show. Because as, as we're recording this, we're on the, uh, we're on the 4th of August, we're on the the beginning of the new champ EFL and that's going to be some gosh that I mean the championship was was pretty good last year with Burnley my my team in it but gosh that is almost premiership too isn't it this year yeah you know especially like Leeds United coming down as well um I, I love championship football I think what, what I like press best about it is we don't have to sit around waiting for a VAR scrutiny and examination every time the ball hits the back of the net yeah and the games are even and the old maximum it's quite true about anybody beats anybody. Um, championship football is fantastic. Um, but so is Premier League football. And and I I think that League One football was the best standard I ever watched last year. Never seen League One football played at higher standard than than I saw in 22-23 season. Uh, and and there's some good football played in League Two as well. I, I enjoy the whole I enjoy it across the spectre of all four divisions, you know, and and a bit of non-league football as well. A bit of my mate Brent Peters football at Bake Up Borough now and again. Yeah, how do you think Burnley are going to go in the Prem? I think they'll get spanked a few times. I think they'll play some absolutely magnificent football at times, and I think that they'll finish outside the bottom three. And I think, I think, I think when it gets going, once that football passing style gets into full flow, I think I think it'll be the proverbial roller coaster ride. I think there'll be some fantastic games at Turf Moor, some great football, and maybe one or two hidings as well. But that will be all part of it. But. I, I think the Bernie fans can look forward to the season with, with great optimism. Yeah. Now there aren't many. I don't think there are. I don't. I could be, could be talking utter rubbish here, but I guess there aren't many uh, sports journalists who are also uh, funeral celebrants. And uh, 
tell tell us how you got into that, Peter. What was the kind of catalyst for that? Quite a lot of things, really. Um, In four minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The pandemic wasn't kind to me. Uh, I devised uh, my own media school uh, and I'd signed a five-year contract with someone. We were going to take off a superb new educational project. It was all in place. Everything was there. And then it got messed up by the pandemic. I sat around. There was no work for me. Uh, didn't, didn't earn anything for five months, practically. Um, and I thought, life's going to be different. You know, I'm I'm not going to be going to football grounds doing features during the week because it's all been done on Zoom now. This project is not going to go the full distance because one of the backers is going to lose loads of money and it never did get off. And I don't... I, I, I probably do my mum's passing. Um, one of the last days she ever left the house, we went to a funeral and a family member did the service uh, for for a neighbour. And mum talked about if you can comfort people, you know. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. And 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 I thought, well, I I'll have a crack at being a celebrant. I saw a course that was uh, being advertised, a three day training course, learn, learning course, and I, I just thought, what have I got? Journalistic acumen. No, I know what to do uh, in terms of when somebody gives me a story uh, or how to put information together. I've got many different types of broadcast voices. Maybe I can offer something different. So I went on the course, absorbed everything. The Monday afterwards, a lady called Maureen Greenall that works for one of the Dignity Branches gave me my first job. And it went from there. Um, started doing some things for Alderson and Horan in Burnley, a great, great team to work for. Stephen Alderson is such a professional guy and such a great guy and fantastic team to work with. And and it, and it went from there. I've just been busy ever since with it, really. I, I guess, um, I mean, I, I've done, I've had mon- many wonderful experiences and just listening to you talk so passionately about football, that's clearly given you many wonderful experiences as well. But I, I, I'm, I, I guess you're going to concur when I say this, being able to walk with a family in a in a time of loss and grief is one of the greatest privileges that can be given. I I, I get huge um satisfaction. People, you know, maybe that's not the right word, but it's a real privilege for me to help people. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we're both singing from the same hymn sheet there, uh, Alec. Pardon the pun. Um... It's 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 not an easy job at times. It it, it can be a t- terribly stressful time for the family. I, I think the the best thing is, as you explain there, when people are happy with what you've done for them, then yeah, there is a a nice comforting feeling about it. But there are times when you sort of think, you know, what, what is going on when when you stand in front of families and mums and dads are there and children have died. Um, I think the hardest thing is when people have taken their own lives. You, you probably understand what I'm saying. Like looking after people, look, representing families where there's been a suicide. Um, and I'm so empathetic with, uh, with 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 that, you know, because when there's not enough mentioned about people who've got severe mental illnesses, there isn't. People don't understand it unless it comes to your front door. And, and I've got understanding of it in, in my lifetime, you know, and when you knock on somebody's door and that person has been so mentally ill that they've taken their own lives. That's the hardest bit. You know, um, I, I find that, I mean, I can do it and I have to do it because there's 
a large professional element there, but that's part of the challenge of it. You know, you know, there's, there's times when you do a service and have prepared a couple for 93 year olds and there's great life stories. But the hardest thing for me is when people have gone long, long, long before the time, but all we can do is support and represent the families the best we can. And, and, and we do it, Alderson and Horan and, 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 and the dignity team as well. And, and, and yeah, just do your best, give them your best. And that's all you can do. Yeah. Well, very, very thoughtful uh, words there, Peter. It's been really lovely chatting to you on the Godcast. I'm, I'm sorry we haven't got longer. I'm sorry that our paths haven't crossed sooner to lads who grew up in Nelson. <laughs> he, he took different pathways, but it's been really lovely. You're looking forward to the new season, I guess. Where, where are you? Absolutely. Have you got the next few games all sorted then? Where, where yeah, you... I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch your least favourite team, Malik. I'm going to really immerse myself in Blackburn Rovers for the next uh, 180 minutes of their footballing uh life so um yep looking 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 forward to it definitely and, and i'm be turf more for radio working for radio at uh burning against man city for the opening premier league game yeah I so uh, definitely looking wait. forward to that as well i can't wait i can't wait to see what uh, Vinny does with our boys after such a fabulous season and i'm, I'm cautiously optimistic so we'll be fine you, you'll be fine okay I said, peter I said, I said we then <laughs> the, the, the the team will be fine yeah, well, lovely chatting to you. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Uh, Thanks we'll, for having me on. We'll catch up soon. Keep up your good work as well, Alec. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Take care, Paul.